Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning, we will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Special guest. It's the Pages of Popcorn Podcast. Special guest. gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Quick note before we get started today, this episode was recorded without the use of actual mics, just the uh, computer mic, and Leah and I sat right next to each other, so the sound quality is less than ideal. I apologize for that. Unfortunately, we did not have two mics, and we lacked the technical ability to record on two different tracks, so... It made editing fun, and I hope that you can still hear what we have to say, because I think what we have to say was interesting and relevant and exciting and worth listening to. Obviously, I'm biased, but apologies in advance for the sound quality in two weeks when we are back talking about our next book, which I'm not going to say right now because it could be one of either two things, depending on who gets back to me fastest. I promise the quality will be our normal level of confidence. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies based on books. We talk about the books that made the movies into the movies that they were, and then we don't talk about the revitalized, rebooted, short-lived Hulu miniseries that is based on the movie that was based on the book, because honestly, we don't have time, and I have a little bit of a lack of interest in such things. So anyways, Today, we will be discussing High Fidelity, but you already knew that because you clicked the button in your podcast layer, so good for you on that. Before we start, and before I reintroduce to you my awesome, amazing, special guest co-host for the day, just a quick reminder that you can email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Pages and Popcorn Podcast. KMMAmedia.com is the website where the show lives with all of its notes and resources and links and previews and exciting information about pop-in events where you can come onto Zoom and chit-chat about YA novels or whatever the next thing is that we talk about. And we are recording today <laughs> slightly differently, which means that there's a podcast cat who's probably going to make noise. So sorry in advance for that. Yeah, so check out kmmamedia.com for show notes and all that stuff that I already mentioned. And if you'd like to support the show, we would love your support. You can join us on Patreon for $5 a month. It really helps pay the bills around these parts. And if you are so inclined, please give us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen to us because that will let people know that we exist. Okay, so now we're going to talk about High Fidelity. So today, before we before I do my recap, I'm going to just say hello to my in-studio guest. Hi, Leah. Hi, Kalia. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Hooray. 
those of you who think, oh, wait, that voice sounds familiar, that name sounds familiar, well, it should, because she was here to talk about Jurassic Park and also Enola Holmes, and someday maybe the second Enola Holmes movie, because, you know, they are making a second one. So she's currently sitting in a chair next to me. We are recording without the benefits of our own personal mics, which will make editing fun, and the cat is sniffing her hair like crazy, because apparently... That's what cats do. Okay. <laughs> Never a dull moment over here in Pages and Popcorn podcast land. Okay. I need to stop encouraging her. Yeah. yeah. It's all your fault. Always. And here's our recap. First, our book recap. High Fidelity is a novel by British author Nick Hornby, first published in 1995. Rob Fleming is a 35-year-old man who owns a record shop in London called Championship Vinyl. His lawyer girlfriend, Laura, has just left him, and now he's going through a crisis. At his record shop, Rob and his employees, Dick and Barry, spend their free moments discussing mix, tape, aesthetics, and constructing Desert Island top five lists of anything and everything that demonstrates their knowledge of music, movies, and pop culture. Rob uses this exercise to create his own list, the top five most memorable split-ups. This list includes the following ex-girlfriends, Allison, Penny, Jackie, Charlie, and Sarah. It does not, not, not include Laura. See, see how it doesn't include Laura? Because he's like in a pretty extreme state of denial, at least to start with. Rob goes through the typical steps of dealing with the breakup. He doesn't tell anyone at first, reorganizes his records, eventually fixates on the new guy that Laura's with, getting really creepy and annoying via too many phone calls to Laura and the new guy. He wallows in self-pity that maybe the new guy is better in bed than he is. He feels better when he finds out that Laura hasn't slept with a new guy yet. He has an unfulfilling one-night stand. He visits his parents, is annoyed that they have lives that don't revolve around him. Then he sets about on a quest to distract himself under the guise of trying to figure out why nobody loves him. First up, Allison, who was with him for like three days in sixth grade. Well, turns out that she married the boy that she checked him over for. Rob sees this as proof of true love, a force he could never hope to battle, and thus not his fault. He moves on. Penny, who in high school wouldn't let him get past first base, so he dumped her, and she went out and then went all the way with the next guy who then bragged about it. How dare she? What was it about Rob that she didn't want? He finds her and he learns that she just wasn't really ready to have sex yet. And he did such a number on her by breaking up with her that she didn't have the, quote, energy to fight off the next guy. Her trauma is totally ignored by Rob as he is relieved that, oh, right, he dumped her. Whew, moving on. Jackie, the girl who Rob stole from one of his mates, but once it was out in the open, it really wasn't fun anymore. And then they broke up and then she got back together with that boyfriend. And now they're totally still together and happy and okay. So that had less to do with him as well. Wow, this trip down memory lane is doing wonders for his ego. Which takes us to Charlie, the big one. The one he never got over because it was college and she was amazing and he knew that she was out of his league. And so when she left him for some other guy, he went a bit nuts and was an asshole and then got depressed and then dropped out of college and his life pretty much atrophied and it's all Charlie's fault. So he finds her and she's pretty much the same. But he hates her and all her fancy friends and she basically tells him that he was a dud. So fuck her. He doesn't like her anymore. And oh boy, what a relief to not have her hanging over his head anymore. Last up, Sarah, who was a sad, depressed person, also stuck in an atrophied life, and they were miserable together for a while, but then she left him for someone else who was no longer in the picture, and Rob realizes that she is still sad and lonely, and he's better off, so, whew, another one off his list because she obviously regrets breaking up with him. While Rob is going through all of this, his employees Dick and Barry are finally doing something with their lives. Dick has met a nice girl, and Barry has joined a band. 
Rob is jealous of both of them and is kind of a dick about it and again starts spinning into his past, back when he met Laura, and things were good. He was a DJ, she was a punk person, they met, it was awesome, but then she got a real lawyer job making more money, and he was stuck in his record shop job, and he got resentful, and then he cheated on her, and then he told her, and oops, turns out she was pregnant, and then she knew he wasn't a long-term option, so she got an abortion, but she still seems upset about the whole thing. Rob understands this, but oh well, it can't be helped. Oh, and in the present day, Rob realizes that when she said she hadn't slept with Ian yet, she had in fact said yet, which implies, yeah. By the time he's figured this out, she has slept with Ian. Rob is all depressed again. But then Laura's dad dies, and she asks him to come to the funeral, and she admits that she's just too tired to not be with him. So romantic. And he realizes that his fear of commitment is a result of his fear of death of those around him, and his tendency to act on emotion is responsible for his continuing desires to pursue new women. So they get back together. And she helps him relaunch his DJ career. And he almost cheats on her with yet another woman, but then doesn't because character growth, question mark. Instead, he asks Laura to marry him because character growth, question mark. And she says no, but somehow it's cool that he asked. And that's in air quotes. It's an important thing. Whatever. Barry's band is awesome. The one night stand singer is awesome. Everyone gets their happy ending. The end. And then we have the movie recap. High Fidelity is a 2000 romantic comedy drama film directed by Stephen Frears. It stars John Cusack and a whole bunch of other people. And here we go. Here's our recap. Set to a pretty epic soundtrack, we have the following story. Laura is breaking up with Rob and taking her stuff. He is wallowing in the midst of denial and self-pity. He talks to the camera. He breaks the fourth wall. We learn that he has been unlucky in love since the seventh grade. He's a self-aware, mediocre, almost loser who runs a record shop with two other weirdos. He doesn't get along with his mother and is a music snob. Flashback to seventh grade Allison, who threw him over for a new guy after a few days with no warning or explanation. Penny, the high school girl who wouldn't fuck him, so he dumped her. And then she slept with the next guy super fast. Charlie, the perfect college woman who was super sophisticated, etc. But she eventually slept with someone else and left him, giving us the not-so-great line of a sobbing Rob in the rain, screaming at her window, Charlie, you stupid bitch, let's work it out. Okay. Sarah, the also lonely but depressed woman he was with because it was comfy and better than being alone until they found someone else. Anyway, at his store, the weirdo employees are the mumbling, awkward, and very sweet dick, and the larger-than-life, judgy-yet-hilarious Barry. The guys invite him to a club, and he goes, and he meets Marie LaSalle, who's this gorgeous black singer covering a Peter Frampton song, and all three of them dig her, like, a lot. Laura's back to get more of her stuff. Turns out that she's with a former neighbor, Ian, and she calls Rob on his BS of never changing. Now Rob admits that she would be in his top five breakups. Jackie, that person he referenced earlier, was just a placeholder. Flashback to how he met Laura while he was a DJ. Happiest time of his life. He liked the normalcy of the relationship, but now must admit to the four things that he did that probably helped result in the breakup, the cheating, the pregnancy, the abortion, the money, the looking around, like I would be looking around for maybe somebody else. Oh my God. Then he explains them a bit. So yes, he did cheat. He did not know she was pregnant. He didn't know about the abortion. She had the money. He didn't have the money. She gave him the money. He doesn't suddenly have more money just because they broke up. And as for the looking around, she kind of, according to Rob, tricked him into saying that because she basically said the same thing. So then he decides he has to go find meaning. So he calls up Allison and it's the same as the book. She has true love, the next guy, blah, blah, blah. So he's relieved. He has a Bruce Springsteen cameo fever dream and basically decides he's going to do all of this cathartic revisit of the past with all of his other past girlfriends. Next up, Penny. Penny is so pretty, and it's, oh my god, so cringe. She tells him basically to go get fucked, and it's great because he learns nothing. It's the same as the book. She was traumatized, and this is the worst part of the movie. 
It is so bad. Next up, Charlie, but he's going to skip her for now. Next up, Sarah. She is still desperate and sad. And this is where he feels guilty. Not for Penny, but for Sarah. Okay. <clears throat> the filmmakers quickly distract us with Dick meeting a lovely girl named Anna. It is really cute. And also all the guys selling music in the store. And it's really nice. And then two punk kids tries to shoplift. Anyways, pin in that. Because Laura is back again to pick up even more of her stuff. And she admits that she hasn't slept with Ian yet. And this makes Rob so happy that he goes out and sleeps with Marie LaSalle. And it's fine. But they're both clearly not over their last relationship. So after a nice night, they shake hands and she exits stage left, which gives Rob the chance to suddenly remember that Laura said that she hadn't slept with Ian yet. Oh my God. I mean, she wants to. They meet up and he asks her for some reason. She doesn't tell him to go fuck himself. And she has, in fact, now slept with Ian. And now Rob is all depressed and angry again. So now he's calling her from outside her house and being a big douche. And her friend finally asks him why he even wants her back. And Rob thinks about it, but he doesn't really have a clear answer yet because it's time for Charlie to call and invite him over for dinner. Oh my God. But before we can go do that, we need Ian to come into the shop and sort of tell Rob to back off. And even though he's clearly being an adult, it is shot to make him the loser. And there's actually three scenarios of various violence to get him out of the store, but they're all in Rob's mind. In reality, he just stands there and then Leon, Ian leaves. Okay, so now it's the dinner party at Charlie's where Rob realizes that she is an awful person and his rose-tinted glasses need a new prescription and she tells him that he got dumped because he was kind of a sad sack, which he still is. And he realizes as, as Dick goes off with his new girlfriend and Barry has joined a band and everyone's growing up except him. Laura comes over again for the, quote, last of her stuff. And then Rob gives us his top five things he misses about Laura. And it is super sweet. And he's actually growing right in front of our eyes. He even points out that his flawed way of thinking is what got him into this mess. Hey, look at that. He's being self-aware. Back in the shop, the guys are listening to music by those punk skater kids. And Rob says that he will produce their album because apparently that is something he can do, I guess. So it's cool. He's starting to do something for himself, starting to grow and change. Yay. And then Laura's dad dies. Rob is clearly working through some stuff and he finally tells Laura he is sorry with clearly no expectation for anything back. And so of course she wants to have sex with him and then get back together because she's just too tired to not. So they get back together and it's great, perfect. She moves all her stuff in at once, except yeah, there's a new girl, she shows up, she's flirty and he's flirty and uh-oh, and Laura's helping him do a big launch for his CD release and Barry's band is going to play and all it's going to be out. And yet Rob is hitting on this new girl and he's making her a mixtape, which is his love language. And thank God he catches himself doing it and he stops. He asks Laura to marry him. He says he's tired of the fantasy of what ifs. He never gets tired of her. And even though she says no to his proposal, she thanks him for asking. So they are happy and wonderful. And the party is a huge success. And Barry's band is awesome. And everyone lives happily ever after the end. Yup. Yep. Okay. So... There's so many things to say. So many things to say. But the first thing I want to say is, had you read this book or seen this movie before? I watched the movie when it first came out. Okay. So in 2000. Mm -hmm. It's been a minute, you know. Yeah. Over half my life ago at the... At the oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Having just turned 41 <laughs> 20 years ago is technically over half my life now. Wow. Thanks for that. I know. That's <laughs> wild, isn't it? Um, I remember not caring for it super much at the time. So I was really surprised when I told my mom that we were doing this. And she was like, oh, that was such a good movie. And I'm like, I don't remember that you thought it was a good movie. I think I remember that you liked Laura and you like yelled at John Cusack a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fair. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
And, and so that you didn't know it was based on a book or you? I didn't know it was based okay. on a book. No. Okay. So I read the book before the movie, actually. Oh. And I read it in high school. Yeah. Okay. So I was a different person. And I thought it was amazing. Really? Oh, my God. For a long time, I would tell people this is my favorite book really yeah. I had no idea that is not the case anymore by the way but anyways so then the movie came out and I loved the movie and I would tell people for years that it was one of my favorite movies it was one of the only romantic comedies that I liked so it was your favorite book and your one of your favorite movies yes um and I know that I bought the dvd when it came out you know and I feel like I've probably watched it a couple times but then it was like I, I knew it, so I didn't need to rewatch it, and I didn't need to reread it, and then it just sat it there in the back of my brain for years and years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And then at some point in the last 20 years, I remember thinking, I wonder if it holds up. Oh, I'm scared to find out. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so then I stopped calling it my favorite, but I also still had this little place in my heart where I loved it, but I was also afraid to re-examine it. And so here we are re-examining it <laughs> actually you know what no that's that's too that's too generous i feel like here we are examining it for the first time i don't feel yeah. like i examined it at all i feel like i wanted to be a different person and i was a different person and you know the the, the chill yeah. girl trope yes okay yes I, I think I was a chill girl or uh -huh. a chill girl wannabe at one point in my life. Well, I think that it makes sense that someone in high school would like this book and the movie more than someone of our age. Mm -hmm. Because when you are in high school, you have all the same thoughts that Rob has about everything. Like because those are high school level thoughts or young adult level thoughts. So, so the way he was in college with Charlie makes sense mm -hmm. and, and all that. But then what ended up happening is you have kind of an arrested development situation where he just pressed pause at college maturity wise, and then just never progressed. Yeah. And it makes sense when you're young and you still think all that stuff and you're thinking, oh, wow, a real adults feel this way too. When you're a 40-year-old that actually has it together, it's a lot less attractive. Yes, <laughs> definitely. You're like, I progressed past that way before 35. It's a coming-of-age story for a 35-year-old man. And one of the big differences is, is between the movie and the book is that the movie has John Cusack playing this character, which comes off a lot more charming. And they also omit a lot of the internal monologue that was not flattering to him and a lot of the details of his personal life that were unflattering yeah, so to him. Rereading this book, I was horrified by the misogyny, uh -huh. the racism, uh-huh. The bigotry, like it was bad. And I was like, this guy sucks. He, right. But because I have in my head the movie, I kept trying to like put John Cusack in there, like my visual of it, and it doesn't work because John Cusack is like likable. He's just yes. likable. He's very charismatic. So I was like, they must have just and they did, they changed a lot. They 
They've watered him down immensely. Mm -hmm. They kept some of the really good lines. They kept some good stuff and they kept his conversational tone and all of these things, Mm -hmm. but they, they made some very significant changes. So while we're here, I'll go ahead and talk about some of them. They, they made him more likable because they made him vulnerable in a couple of pretty major ways. So one of the ways is when he's thinking about Laura being with Ian and he's really angry about it in the book, he just stays angry about it in the movie. He's angry about it. And then we have this slam hard cut to him literally in the bed with the blankets pulled up to his face, looking at the ceiling. And his voice is like tiny and sad. And he's like, Mm -hmm. we used to listen to him make love with other women. And like, it's so sympathetic and he's hiding in his bed and you just, you feel for him. He's, his eyes are wet. He's like crying. He's sad, you know, and we feel that sadness so much more. The other big way that they made him more vulnerable, I feel like is at one point in the movie, he talks about the things he misses about Laura and he's got his top five things, which is not in the book. Mm -hmm. That is one of those scenes that I remembered for years and years and years. It was one of my favorite scenes from the movie. And he's talking about like, I, you know, the way she walked around, you know, and the way like she moved her feet back and forth when she was getting comfortable at night before she fell asleep. And I remember thinking that's so sweet and romantic that he has noticed this inconsequential thing about the person that he loves. Mm -hmm. And he loves that random inconsequential thing. And when I love somebody, I know one of the ways that I know that I love them is because I love their random inconsequential things that nobody else cares or notices. Those are the things that I love and that I pick up on and that I remember yeah. and that means something. So that those were really great additions, really good adaptations of the original work into the movie. There's a, a lot of other things that they did too, but those ones specifically really to me call out yeah how how different he is in the in the book the other thing is they they really obfuscated some of his past Mm -hmm. like for example the movie starts out with his top five breakups notably missing is that middle relationship with jackie that lasted a hot second because that is the one that makes him look like a psychopath horrible and horrible because not only was it cheating because she was in a relationship but he stole her from his friend Mm -hmm. and he did it deliberately we're not talking an accident like he planned it out and he did it specifically because he wanted to break them up not because he wanted jackie but because he was envious of what they had and that image of that perfect couple and he Mm -hmm. wanted to take them down and there's that element in the book that runs through with rob of meanness mm-hmm. right there's that scene in the car after at the funeral at Laura's dad's funeral she takes off and he follows her and they and, and she's oh. like let's he takes off and she follows she him. follows him yeah and let's, ha- and let's have and then she decides like let's just get it on in a field in the car and he deliberately asks her um if she used a condom with Ray and he does it not because he's concerned about his sexual health, but because he knows it will hurt Laura. Yeah. Because it will make her feel bad. Like, Oh no, he's right. We shouldn't do this. I'm a horrible. Cause it makes, it makes her feel promiscuous. Right. And you know, this was 1995 to 2000 range. 
So he does those things a lot. Like he has this just mean, nasty streak in him that's really camouflaged in the movie or just skated over a lot better. Definitely, definitely. And they, they, they take out Jackie, like you said, completely. They they do actually have sex in the movie in the car. He doesn't yes. ask about STDs. Right? You know, which on the one hand, you're like, well, that's not practicing safe sex. And on the other hand, you're it, it makes it more sympathetic and more passionate, more like right. we're doing this to get rid of our, you know, our feelings and, you know, or she, she needs to be distracted and he's like there for her. Right. You know, um, yeah. So yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of the meanness, a lot of the cattiness and just kind of bad behavior. And the other thing is because partly because it's John Cusack and partly because they just change a couple of words when he's mm-hmm. talking about his employees mm-hmm. and in the movie, it's very clear that he likes Dick and Barry, you know, he's kind of like that roll your eyes, curmudgeon, or oh, grumble, grumble, these guys, you know, the, the musical moron twin, blah, blah, blah. But in the book, he like legitimately doesn't like them mm-hmm. at all. He he thinks less of them. He looks down on them. And he the way he describes them and the way he interacts with them is just cruel. And they don't hang out the same way. In the movie, they go, they play, they go to places together to listen to music. There's the wonderful scene mm-hmm. where they're trying to sell their music. And he's like, I'm gonna sell this by putting this on. And you can you get this vibe of their friendship. So even though they rag on each other, and that's that's also with the, the change of Barry. So Barry is played mm-hmm. in the movie by Jack Black, which, I mean, this movie did a phenomenal casting on everybody, but yeah. specifically John Cusack and Jack Black are perfect. And okay, Barry still mocks Dick. He still is like, your girlfriend's name is what? Her name is Anna. Anna what? Anna Moss. Anna Moss? What is she all green and fuzzy? Like he makes fun of Dick. But then yeah. in the very next sentence in the movie, he says, that's great guy. Good for you. Okay, I'm gonna go off and do my thing. Blah 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 blah. Like he changes it, so it's this friendly, like paternal. It's like brotherly ribbing instead of mean spirited. Because in the book, he's just mean for no mm-hmm. reason, mm-hmm. and so then you don't want to sympathize with these mean jerks. Well, there's also I think the difference between a first person narration in a novel and a movie because. When it's a novel, you're getting everything from the filter of the main character, right? He's telling you what's going on, but it's entirely from his perspective. Right. So we don't actually know how annoying Barry is, how socially awkward Dick is. We don't, you know, because that's his impression of them. Right. And him filtering what they're saying. When it's on screen there's a bit of distance between that because you're actually watching what the characters are literally doing. You're interpreting their body language, their actual language, their tone and everything for yourself rather than through that filter Mm -hmm. of the main character. I think that's one of the things that makes translating books like this to screen challenging. Um, Because I do think we have a little bit of the unreliable narrator thing. A lot. You know? He's strangely honest about himself in some ways. Like he'll flat out say, you you know, I did that to be mean or something, right? You he'll 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 he understands some things, but then other things he's oh not self-aware. But I feel like I feel like that is a ploy. It's you're like, I'm so honest, I'm so straightforward, I'm so conversational that when I tell you these horrible things, you're like, oh well, if you're 
honestly telling me these horrible things. Like, obviously, it's the worst thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're obviously not that bad because you're admitting it. You're being all, you're a straight mm-hmm. shooter. Like we have this perception of, you know, well, if you're honest, then you can't be all that bad, uh, which right. isn't true at all. Um, and, and that's definitely apparent in the book. He, we're supposed to sympathize with him partly because of his conversational tone. And he's just yeah. like, here I am. And we're, we're, but, and like, I'm going to treat you like an equal. I'm going to tell you my story, yada, 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 without acknowledging that it is being very filtered. And he is very, very unre- right. unreliable. Well, he, the, all right. Nick Hornby uses a technique that annoys me and and it and it's used a lot in modern literary fiction which is the basically you're you're telling things from the main character's perspective but you the main character deliberately does not reveal information to you until he feels he has a rapport with the reader mm-hmm. so um what that stuff like you don't get to the point where he tur- he he says to the reader or Liz walks in, right? They're supposed to meet for lunch and Liz walks in, calls him a bastard and leaves. And he's like, oh, Laura has revealed at least two of the following pieces of information. And then you're like, holy crap. I can't believe she even stayed with you as long as she did stay with you. Right. <laughs> you are, right? You're, right. <laughs> you are. Liz is completely correct. Which, going to Liz for a second, played by Joan Cusack, John Cusack's actual sister. Perfect casting again. Perfect. This character throughout both the book and the movie, I feel like she said every single thing to him that I wanted to say to him. Yeah. Like she is the audience in this book. She is us like yelling at the character. And I kind of feel like maybe he pitched that to her, like called her up and was like, hey, sis, you want a role where basically you just yell at me all the time and call me an asshole? And she's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what big sister wouldn't want that? Right? Okay, I don't actually know if she's the older one or not. That was an assumption. No, I feel bad. As an older sister yourself. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I actually really like that whole thing where he's like, you know, first Liz calls and is like, I'm not taking sides. And he's like, yeah, we'll see. And then, you know, he waits and he knows that she's going to find out information and call him, call him an asshole. And then He's like, yeah, I, I am. I am an asshole. And then in the book, he does this thing. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm an asshole. But you, reader, are also probably an asshole. Think of the worst right. things you've ever done. And don't put any context with it. Don't explain it. Just list it out. See who's the asshole now. Right. He's like, oh, wait. Yeah. Who's the asshole now? And I was like, no, actually still you. Yeah. Because I have never done anything like that to one of my partners. Seriously. <laughs> I sat here and went, okay. I mean, okay, I, you know, not a perfect person, but yeah, it doesn't compare, man. It doesn't, it does not, it does not compare. And the fact that you assume that it would, that you assume that everybody is as flawed and fucked up as you are is really unfortunate and says a lot about you. And in, in the book, he gives more explanation on the cheating. There Mm -hmm. was a girl and he cheated and he told Laura about it and they like they it was a short thing it was only they only had sex four times because that's very important to rob is the number of times and, and like, she was crazy yeah she was crazy but, but they, it was the best sex, sex he ever okay all right let's segue into the um the misogyny in these books because that one was a big part of the misogyny for me every time he talks about rosie after explain the initial who rosie is um 
he refers to her as Rosie, the simultaneous orgasm girl. Right. Every time. And I'm like, wow, he does this a lot. Like reduce women to their genitalia and their sexual relationship to him and how things were in bed. And it's just gross. It's, it's, it's sex and music. Because yes. the other thing he talks about music is like, oh, let me describe this person to you. Her top five recording artists at the time when we knew each other were these yeah. five. That's how you know she's cool, you know? Or this person likes this music. That's how you know they're not cool, mm-hmm. you know? So it's all sex and music for him, which again is very teenage because, I mean, that was me as a teenager too, you know? Mm-hmm. Sex and music. That's how you define and describe and understand. And, mm-hmm. and that whole, like, what you like is more impor- important than who you are bullshit yes because that 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 makes an appearance at one point they were just they'd had this discussion it was referenced from a while ago that he and barry and dick i think were having a conversation and probably barry that came up with this idea because it's such a barry idea um that if it's not who you it's not what you're like it's what you like that matters that your interests and your shared communal things are more important than your character essentially when it comes to having a good relationship and that's one of the few points of character growth that he has towards the end of the book he's like maybe it really is what you're like Mm -hmm. who you're who you are maybe your character counts more than your netflix cue you know and and again, though, like you said, it's very much a teenage thing because that's how we bond with people. Oh, what yes. shows do you like? What sh- music do you like? If you like this band, I like this band, we can be instant friends, mm-hmm. right? And that's not sustainable relationships, but that is a quick and easy thing. In fact, that's, I mean, a lot of the way we make friends even nowadays, like a lot of my Facebook friends are like oh I joined this buffer you know Buffy the Vampire yes. Slayer group or I'm in this Star Trek group or I'm over here talking about in a book a group that's all about books that are about this very specific thing you know so fandoms mm-hmm. but one of the worst parts about fandoms and this is true in almost every fandom is the gatekeeping yes and these guys are big time gatekeepers oh my god okay <laughs> now I am not a music person in the sense that it's not that I don't like music. She used air quotes, you guys. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I want to be clear. I love music. I listen to a lot of music. I grew up listening to a lot of music. It's just what I was raised with was very folksy and underground and different because my parents like played in a folk band and were classically trained. So it was not the normal stuff so I didn't grow up with the whole who are your favorite bands and you know the posters of the the boy bands on my walls of the girls so I'm reading this book and I'm like oh my god how can anyone be this obsessed with pop music (laughs) the whole the fact that that was one of the most ironically funny parts to me of this entire book was that they were this snobby about pop music (laughs) like any other kind of music I could get being snobby about but pop music okay so I like pop music I like 
lots of different kinds of music, yeah. right? And I know that part of the reason why I liked this book in high school was because I recognized a lot of what they All were the talking about. Yes. And I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. And then in the book, at one point he gets to this point, so it's towards the end when he's growing as a character and Laura has introduced him to some new people that he really likes. And then at the end of the night where he's like, these are cool people, he looks through their CDs and he's like, horrified because their CDs are all, you know, and I'm not gonna tell you what they are in just a second, but like he does this list, like this little list of what's in there. And he's like, oh my God. And the Rob from the earlier in the book would never be friends with these people. And the Rob from halfway through the book would want to know about that, what's on their music shelves, and then would have decided I will never be friends with these people. But now our grown up Rob is like, oh, maybe it is okay that you have different tastes than me, blah, blah, blah. But I remember getting to that point in the book and being like, I have like all those CDs. Like, so, those are, so then I was like, wait a minute, am I not cool? Like who's decided that Tina Turner and the Eagles weren't cool because Tina Turner and the Eagles are cool. And you guys, it's 20 years later. You know what I'm still listening to? Fucking Tina Turner and the Eagles. Some of these other bands that they yep. mentioned early on, I was like, oh, I haven't listened to them since I was reading this book. They have to say they're not good, but it is very different. And this book to me, I mean, I'm kind of jumping a little bit, but I'll say it again. This book is, is pop music. It is right. like, at first you're it like, is. oh yeah, I kind of get this. And like, it doesn't age particularly well. It, yeah. I, I was struck by like, he's, he's idolizing Bruce Springsteen songs. Like he wants to live in a Bruce Springsteen songs, but the Eurythmics are trash. And, <laughs> and I'm like, what are you, like, Bruce Springsteen to me is like really mainstream. Like just really mainstream and that and he's idolizing that but then tina turner is it's not okay not okay somehow and i'm like i don't i don't get it yet exactly the the eagles i mean if you listen to the guitar I, from a technical standpoint it doesn't make sense right? you know from playing their music yeah i don't i don't understand where the lines are and maybe that's just because i'm not in cool according to rob and dick and barry uh -huh. like, but just because you've never heard of a band doesn't make it inherently cooler than bands you have heard of, right? Right. It's just, which bothers me. Okay, so yeah, yeah. In the movie though, they, they take out that whole scene where he goes to the people's house and he looks through their CDs. So yeah. that was kind of a bummer because it, you know, it was They very... took it out because it was Jackie that he, well, no, that no. was, no, that was, it was but it was Laura's um, friends. Laura's friends. Her coworkers. So this was when they got back together and Laura did it deliberately to make a point. Yes, she did. To him. Yeah. That you like these people. You will hang out with these people. Like they're genuinely good people. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, that getting stuck in that, yes, the high school click of we all like the same thing. So we're all going to hang out together is pretty damaging because if you look at their relationship, Rob, Dick, and Barry's, they're all sort of like, it's almost like a standoff situation among the three of them where mm -hmm. they're, they, Dick is incredibly knowledgeable, like probably the most knowledgeable of all of them. He listens to everything, gets right. all the underground stuff. And Barry is like nervous about saying the wrong thing about around him. He feels judged. Rob lies about listening to tapes that they make him because he doesn't want them to judge him, but he also doesn't want to listen to all the music. Um, so they don't have like this really great relationship, even among themselves. Like that, it's because they're more focused on what you like than what you're like. Mm -hmm. They can't ever even relax among their their 
peers, their group. And that's, that's sad to me. Like I would rather be among people that don't get my things, but enthusiastically support my likes. Right. Than people like that. Right. That are deep into my fandoms. And that one upmanship is this very competitive thing. And I feel like that that is nerd culture in a lot of ways which mm-hmm. is what leads to the gatekeeping right you can't be a real star trek fan unless you've watched all of star trek including the animated series and blah blah mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah you know um which is just bullcrap you can like something and not be an expert at it like exactly. that's kind of the that's, that's a good thing and i so. feel like part of growing up is coming to that realization and accepting that you don't have infinite time to devote to your hobbies so instead you're going to curate them just to your likes mm-hmm. and not judge anyone else by it. Like I used to watch every anime that came out every season, give it a chance. Now, like one or two a season, because that's what I have time for. And I'm just going to focus on the ones I like. Mm-hmm. And I listen to other people talk about the other ones and and that's great. And, but I just don't have the time anymore and yeah. I do, or the desire to devote that much of my life to something. It's It's interesting because I can say this, what we've just been saying and I can preach it and then we talk about books and I feel the little judgy voice in my head come out and be like you liked that book oh my god I don't know if we can be friends and there's a little part of me that means it and I I have to work on it there was a there was a meme on Facebook not too long ago and it was like you're on a first date and someone says x is their favorite book and you immediately leave you know what is the name of that book like what's the book that if someone said this is my favorite book you would be like I'm out of here, right? And I instantly came up with like five. I had like on the tip of my tongue, they were there. And I feel very justified. But I said that and somebody was like, why don't we just not judge people for what they like? Like, why are you being such a bitch? Basically, thank you, Kelly, you're right. But my, and my response was, well, but it's a date. I don't want to make a relationship, like a long-term relationship with somebody if our our fundamental values are so different. If you're like Tucker Carlson is amazing, or, you know, Anne Rand is like, you know, whatever, we're not going to get along. Like if you're like, it's a religious text, it doesn't matter what religious text, we're not going to get it. Like we are not going to make a good partnership for the long term. So I feel like it was a flawed question because it was talking about a date because Mm -hmm. friendship is different. And I will tell you a little story. I met somebody once, neighbors, we went into their house. They had books on their shelves that were very conservative Fox Newsy books. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, we'll never be friends. They're a different religion than me. Oh, but we're not religious, but they're they're religious and they have these books. And you know what? We actually became very good friends. <laughs> we're still friends. We're not like close friends, mm-hmm. but we're nice friends. And they watch my child and I've watched their kids and like we bond and like you know, it's, it's a thing. And so I'm so glad that I didn't just immediately cut them out because of what was on their bookshelves. Right. You know, I don't have to sleep with them and date them. I can exactly. still be their friends with different tastes. So, but you're right. That is something that you learn. And, and I think you learn a lot of that in yeah, college. You do. And in Rob, those years. And Rob stopped, stopped. there mm-hmm. and blamed Charlie for everything, which is another big part of the misogyny. Like he actually has this line in here about Charlie that is like, that woman is single-handedly responsible for my poverty, directionlessness, and failure. I'm like, wow, Wow. that's a lot to put on Catherine (laughs) Zeta-Jones. Another perfect casting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, 
I feel like there's some parts of the book of the of the movie that were more kind to Rob than the book was. Oh, like yeah. the 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 dinner party scene with Charlie in the movie really kind of makes it seem like he they deliberately sort of sidelined him. Like they are, they're eating around like the island, the kitchen island, and he's sort of shoved off into a corner and being kind of deliberately ignored. And um, in the book, it's more like he was way out of his conversational depth and had nothing in common with these people. And then judge them for it. And judge them for it. Not yes. any kind of introspection, although he does acknowledge that he would like to have their jobs and their opinions and their clothes. Mm -hmm. So he's sort of acknowledging the jealousy. Mm -hmm. But not in a productive way. Really. But I feel yeah. like that's that's sort of a foil for the the dinner that Laura takes him to with her coworkers towards the end, too. That this is the comparison between this group that he sort of has this idealized idea about and where he's actual actually comfortable mm -hmm. and and where he wants to be so he makes these little growths but it's the sort of growths that are like oh my god why did it take you so long to see that about yourself he blames pop music for his lack of ability to to grow and change mm -hmm. in some ways and i think it's an interesting concept to say mm -hmm. if you're surrounded by something it's going to affect you whether that is violent video games or violence on tv or uh, adult themed mm -hmm. television or pop music or religion or whatever it is it's going to affect you right so mm -hmm. yeah i mean there is a, there's an element of truth there if you constantly listen to pop music until you think that, that is what relationships are supposed to be if you only watch sitcoms you're like right. this is what relationships are supposed to be there's we, we 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 bicker and we insult one another and everything gets fixed in 30 minutes and nothing stays true for long term you know that, that gives you a warped sense of reality right well he has that that that's a, the, one of the themes which which comes first the misery or the pop music right which may wh you know which chicken and egg you know were we miserable so we listened to pop music or are we miserable because we listen to pop music which is weird in my brain because i think of pop music as being like upbeat but apparently he's just really focused on the lyrics like the lyrics are the important part. And half the time I just tune out pop. It's what I put on the radio to just like drive and not really think deeply about the music. But there's like, there's popular music, which is, I think is what he's talking about too. Like there's like, like the top forties, you know, the radio mm -hmm. play stuff. And some of that, I mean, a lot of, it's all about love, you know, even it, it is, it's, it's like it's, makeups and breakups and, and yearnings. That's, it's a palatable type of misery right the romantic misery um and one of the things that makes you just beat your head against the wall with rob is that one of his big old epiphanies is i'm afraid of death <laughs> <laughs> okay dear god man really really you're afraid of death you're sabotaging your entire life because you're afraid of death you're a walking cliche it feels like a cop-out, honestly. It really I does. I feel like Nick Hornby got to that point in the novel. He's like, well, we have to have some kind of reason. And I haven't laid in the groundwork of like trauma or blah, blah, blah. And I can't just be like that you're just an ass. That some people are just assholes. Like right. there has to be 
a reason. So I'll give them right. a reason, but it's like a universal reason that my readers will somehow be able to like understand and sympathize with. So what is something that everybody has? I know, fear of death. <laughs> okay, can you say, it drives me nuts in this book that the entire book, he's blaming women for his problems and then his life gets fixed because of a woman. Like Laura at the end of this yes. has this conversation with him where she's like, why are you unhappy in your job? Basically, because think of like your top five jobs and they're all bizarre, like record producer during this specific time frame for this specific label so that I could meet these specific artists. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe have them sign something. They're, it's, it's bizarre. Um, but she's like, but the last one on the list is architect. And she's like, really? You want to be an architect? And he's like, well, no, not really. I just needed a placeholder. And she's like, well, wouldn't you rather be a record store owner than an architect? Yeah. She's like, so you're living one of your top five jobs. And she kind of puts his job into perspective and changes the perspective from you're just a loser to you're living the life you that actually should be making you happy. And then she goes out of her way to set up like a party for him to DJ at because that's when he was the happiest was when he was DJing and she is the one that takes the initiative for him mm -hmm. to to make those changes all he does is realize I'm tired of focusing on romance maybe I should just stay with Laura because then I could focus on other things besides romance which is, I'm just like oh god speaking of a good change in the movie he's the one who is like, you know what, yeah. I'm going to produce your record. I'm going to do these things. I'm starting to make other changes. Yeah. And, and they added in, this is one of the things that makes him look a little better in the movie. They added in the, the young punk kids for him to sort of mentor and, and go into business with. Because mm -hmm. in the book, that was Marie. Right. <laughs> uh, Laura? like loved Marie's music and insisted that she play at the at the shop and then and I'm like and he didn't say anything yeah like at no he keeps thinking I slept with her I slept with her I slept with her but it, he just omits it he's a coward I'm really glad that Marie in the movie was there and then she went away and then there yes. was no more Mar now I love the actress she is beautiful and her cover of that Peter Frampton song gave me lots of tingle feelings too yes. for sure but it was good that she served her narrative purpose to remind him like to, she stoked his ego gag but also you know that it was it it made it clear that it was empty. Mm -hmm. It was an empty mm -hmm. thing. He had sex with somebody, kind of to prove to himself that he could, but it didn't mean anything. And also she did, she was using him. And so he was used and she had no qualms about it. And it was like, I mean, for one night stands, as one night stands go, it was like the healthiest, best one night stand ever. It is like the type of one night stand yes. that you want to have where you're still friends at the next day and every, nobody has hard feelings and everybody's fine. Everyone had a good time. And then you just walk okay. away. Except that the book makes that so awkward. The, the, book, the actual yes. se like the, the, the sex in the book, that one night stand, it does, it's not presented as that fun. No. More like we're, we're using mutually using each other with permission but the, he even says in there, I did not deliver the goods. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, it can't have been 
she didn't come basically yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it's not the most flattering of rob well and also he didn't really (laughs) want to be there he like tried to leave at one Mm -hmm. point and then kind of like not he didn't get go horse or anything like i'm not saying that but like he was like, I guess I'll just stay. I'm already here, you know? But he even says yeah, like, right. I kind of wish I could just leave. And then like, everybody would know that this happened. But I, I hate that I feel like right. I actually live through this sex. I just want the rep credit for, for bagging this. Yes. Amer- the songwriter. God, Yes, and he's obsessed with sleeping her be- with her because she's a songwriter. And one of the grosser parts in the book was she reveals during that encounter that the ex that she she'd gone to england because the book is set in england in london um where the movie i think is probably set oh it's chicago okay i was i was gonna some american city oh yeah um i watch enough er i recognize those sets (laughs) yes but the reason she came from america to london in the book was because she broke up with her very famous boyfriend and he specifically does not name the artist but but make sure we know it's a major recording artist and he gets crazy excited that he is sleeping with someone who slept with someone famous right and she calls him on it a bit and he denies it but it's true Super true. And he comes up with a really good excuse and he's like, you dodged that reality bullet, you Uh know? It's just those kinds of things that make Rob gross. So here's my question. I am pretty sure that the movie deliberately improved his character, made him more likable. Do you think that Nick Hornby deliberately wrote him to be unlikable? Or do you think he actually expected us to identify with him? I have a quote that answers your question. <laughs> After seeing the film, Hornby expressed surprise at quote how faithful it is, saying another quote, at times it appears to be a film in which John Cusack reads my book. Amazing. So here's my thought. Nick Hornby doesn't see Rob as unlikable. That's my impression too. And I told my husband when I was reading it that one of the things I dis I find so off-putting about the book is I feel like the book assumes that the reader is just as awful as Rob is. Mm-hmm. Not just that Rob assumes it, but that the book assumes it. Like everyone it just has poor character or takes forever to grow up. Mm-hmm. And that's off-putting. I don't yeah. I don't like that. No. I like my characters to be flawed, but not horrible. <laughs> like I feel bad for Laura for getting back together with him. Yes, it is it is disappointing and I feel like in the hands of a different writer, in the hands of the other writer, in the hands of anybody mm. else, Laura would not have gone back. He could have had his epiphany and not gotten the girl at the end. In fact, it would have been a better book if he was still alone at the end, but like with a better you know, appreciation of the world and like being open to things. But no, not only do we have to get him back together because we have to tie it up, but also mm-hmm. Laura has to shepherd him through this growth. Laura is midwifing him in to middle age. And yep. that is super gross. It is super gross. It Now, what I appreciate about the book and the movie is that it's a, they're both really good looks at that like 1990s gender 
reimagining struggle that was going on with men. Like, what does it mean to be men now? And women, what does it mean to be women now? And what should we be putting up with, with each other? Because I feel like there's, there's quite a bit of stuff that would, that he does, that's more typical of previous generations for women to do. Like, he, he's really attracted to strong women in the book, which I didn't like so much the changes they made to Laura. Like they gave Laura long hair when he first met her that softens her when in reality, she was actually punkier. She had like short, black, spiky hair mm -hmm. and she was tough, right? But she had that tough girl image and that attracted him to her. Mm -hmm. He's consistently attracted to strong, powerful, dominant women because he wants to save them emotionally. He wants to nurture them and, and be the softening force in their life, but also the support. And that feels to me like what a lot of girls grew up thinking, I want to save a boy, a bad boy, <laughs> and I want to make him, you know, a good guy. And so there's that kind of thing going on. But then at the same time, he just dismisses all the shit he did in high school because I was a teenage boy. Yeah. You know, no accountability for that. I read this and I was like, I remember walking into Joe and reading that scene with Penny early on and being just like really early, the first few pages he's going through those breakups. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe what he did to this girl. I'm like, and then I ranted about it, about it to him. I'm like, this is exactly what, and Joe's like, oh, oh, okay. Like it wouldn't, it didn't even occur to him the implications there that she had sex when she didn't want to have sex and then later in the book when she rants at him that gives him that rant about exactly what happened I was like I was right I was a thousand percent right mm -hmm. from a female perspective I knew exactly what had happened with her so clearly I actually think Nick Hornby did a really good job writing the female perspective in the characters because every single thing that a woman says to to him to Rob in this is exactly how women feel right. about it. The things Liz said to him, calling him on stuff, it, right down to, you're a pathetic specimen, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, to, to Penny, to, to Laura, like all of the, these things that they say to him are, are like, yeah, yeah, good on them. They're really calling him on the carpet here. Mm -hmm. But yeah. But... No, and I think that you're... you're something you just said a second ago about the gender roles changing mm -hmm. in the 90s is really important. Laura's the one with the high paying job. And that is very threatening to Rob in mm -hmm. both book and movie. And in the book, in both, he's like, she changed and then she has different friends and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, did she change or did she just grow up? Like you're a lot, I mean- Like she has that like, yes, I changed. I changed my wardrobe and my hair because I have to work in a professional environment because the legal aid office shut down. Right. And I can afford a good haircut. And then he goes, well, you hate your job. And she said, no, I love my job. And it, it goes to show you that he's not paying attention. He assumes that she would hate this stuffy corporate job because of course she would, because when he met her, she was punky and blah, blah, blah. And he would hate a stuffy corporate job. Right. So obviously she would hate, but did you notice that Liz was also in a stuffy corporate job? When yes. we saw her at the office, she's way up in some skyscraper yes. with a great view, by the way, Liz is making it. I love Liz. I love Liz. She was my favorite. And then Jack Black, because he was just awesome. I laughed so much at Jack. And you know, okay, yes. here's the thing. Speaking of things that don't age, but are still funny. So there's this whole scene in the movie where it just takes a flight into fantasy. 
at one point, which is weird that it does this, but I guess we've already broken the fourth wall. So uh, sure, whatever. So Ian, the guy that, that Laura's with now, he comes in, he's like, you got to stop calling the house. You got to stop coming around. Very adult, very, but you know, he's also got like rings on his fingers and it's Tim Robbins. And Tim Robbins. Yes. I was just looking that up. Oh my gosh. It is so, he's, he is like that guy, like the anti-Rob in a lot of ways. Right. Okay. Yes. And I feel like they cast him specifically to make Rob look better and to make Ray look kind of, because the way he's described in the book, he's much more of a nerd in the book. Like he's, he's, he's got glasses, I think. Like he 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 wasn't like a hipster wannabe. Not, yeah, but but he the in the book, like you kind of got the impression Rob was was bagging on him more than he deserved to be bagged on. But in the movie, you're like, in the movie, he, he looks he sleazy. Looks, he looks sleazy. Yeah. Okay. So he's got the ponytail, the whole thing, right? He comes in. He's like, you gotta stop this. And and first, Rob is like you know what? Fuck you. Get your patchouli stinking spotty out of my shop. And he like yells at him. And then, and Tim Robbins, you know, Ian runs away. And then like, no, that's not what happened. So what actually happened is that Ian's like, you got to stop calling. And Rob's like, ah, and he goes to attack and Dick and Barry hold him off and he's threatening violence. And Ian's like, oh my God. And Ian runs away and he's all scared. Okay. No, that's not what happened. We have the scene play out a mm-hmm. third time and he's like oh you gotta stop coming by the house you gotta blah blah and this time dick starts it by beaming in right. the sight of all people right like mild-mannered sweet dick in the sight of the head with a telephone just crash right and then they're like kicking him they're like basically stomping him and then freaking dick again pulls the amp or the air conditioner or whatever off the unit. wall just about to beam him over the side of okay like way violent and then snap no it's just you gotta stop calling gotta stop coming around and rob's like okay and that's it and i remember seeing that that in the in the theater and laughing my ass off and it's still funny but i'm like why is this funny we're like threatening violence and it's escalating violence it's not actually funny but the way it's done because it's so over the top and absurd you're, you kind of feel okay with laughing but it's the only time in the movie where we do that except the only other time that we get a kind of a flight of fancy is when he's imagining laura and ian having sex and he's like no porn actors no anybody in the world is having as good of sex as you're having with ian right now in my head right, right? and it's like which is a great line but also like it's like there's it, there's this little fantasy shot of like Ian and Laura and like the hands on the body and she's throwing her head around and of course that is literally the scene where my daughter walked in and I turn around and my daughter and my husband are both standing behind me as I'm watching this movie and I'm like it's the only 10 seconds of the entire movie that's like this right oh my god I kind of wish that they had played I, it is funny and I get why they did it that way because we sort of needed some levity there but I sort of wish that they had done it the way the book had because in the book it was a phone call Mm -hmm. and ian asked him like so are we done here or something like that and rob just goes don't know don't know and 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 puts the phone down and then after that is when he's going through his head all the things he should have done and i would have liked to see him doing that in his apartment washing the dishes and and muttering about what he should have done you know taking a shower muttering about what he should have done and because that is I think very relatable. Yeah. And, and it's one of the things that that is relatable about, about Rob, because I think we've all done that. Oh God, I should have done that. I should have done that. And especially if you feel like you were cowardly, 
right? Like I didn't stand up for myself. I didn't, I hate that guy. And I really was like, get something. I just couldn't think in the moment. And it was, right? Right. That was more in the book. And I feel like that, that almost gave Rob a bit of softness in the book where you're like, I get that. I yeah. get that. It was over the top. But it was really funny. Just like the stalking was over the top. Okay. Liz had to have a conversation with him about how he's scaring Laura. Right. Well, the stalking. And then, you know, her point is like, you're making Ian and Laura into a little unit. Unit, So it's them versus you, which is like the language that'll work with Rob. Because Mm -hmm. the language at first where you're bothering her, you're scaring her, she doesn't like it, wasn't getting through to him. And again, it is a testament to John Cusack that John Cusack can stand in the ring and scream, Charlie, you bitch, let's work it out. And we laugh because it's funny. But like, it's also really fucked up. Yes. Yes. And then what helps is that, right, because that line isn't in the, isn't in the book, okay? They put mm-hmm. that line in. But then right after he says that, he goes, please. And then he like sits in the gutter and cries. And so it's like this anger, but it's it's like, it, it, it's close to like incel, weird, right. man anger. Right. But because he's like kind of so much, not, not a loser, but because he's a little self-aware or he's just so powerless that it, it takes the sting out of it. Mm-hmm. And but it's a it's a tough line. Like I can't imagine them making a rom- comedy, a romantic comedy today, and being like, okay, I can't even think of who the who a person is right now making romantic comedies. Right, actor man, this is your line. So and so, you stupid bitch. Let's work it out. I just no. <laughs> One of my favorite bits that I found hilarious was he's going around trying to get in touch with his other girlfriends for his past girlfriends and mm-hmm. figure out what happened and he called was it allison or ashley allison ashworth allison. right he yeah. calls her mom to get her address from her to you know doctor and her mom is like she he, he, he she says oh i was her first boyfriend she's like <laughs> she married her first boyfriend and he's like um no she actually didn't but her mom like he because he's really insistent like just to make sure you understand. Yeah, this is important I, to me. Right? And her mom goes, goes like, okay, that was nice talking to you. Gotta go. Bye-bye. And like, it's like, the way her mom did it, like the whole tone of her voice and body language was like, you're a crazy person. With a, with a glass of wine. Yes. Okay. She's like, okay, Bob, thanks so much for calling. Click. But it, was in the, the, it was the funniest thing to me because it was just the most, like, at one point, Liz accuses him of viewing the rest of the world as supporting characters in his story and he's like of course doesn't everyone (laughs) right um and that to me is a really good example of it like he doesn't care about Allison's story he doesn't care about her mom or any of that all he's focused on is his narrative and his Mm -hmm. story and his story they were a couple for exactly six hours exactly right because that was the amount of time that they spent after school two hours a day three days and then she moved on which okay i'm gonna quibble here with rob because if you're in a relationship with someone even if it's sixth or seventh grade you're not just in the relationship when you're kissing like the time between the kissing should count as the relationship so six hours no say three days it was Mm -hmm. three days three days 
Why would you cut that down for yourself? Especially when it's like an important, because Rob has a flexible relationship with fidelity. Because to him, the relationship only counts during the sexual part. When she's there. Ah, when, I was going to say when, when it's being physical, but I think, yeah. yeah when they are together. together. And I mean, like, oh my God, like just finding out that Laura hadn't slept with Ian yet and then immediately going out and sleeping with Marie LaSalle. Uh-huh. LaSalle yeah. Like, what is wrong with you? Right. Because, because it's like he wants to manage the women in his life and make sure that they're all fitting into the boxes that he wants them to fit into and playing the roles that he wants them to play. His conversation with Laura, because then he was like, called her again, and then like they show up and she meets him again for, you know, whatever reasons. And he's like, the first thing he said to her, well, did you sleep with him yet? You know, well, what do you want me to say to you? I want you to say that you haven't. I want it to be the truth. Well, I can't do that, she says. And then he just like, he storms out. He's all angry. And I just, I was like, dude, you have no right. You guys are broken up. Mm-hmm. You're broken up. You don't get to ask mm-hmm. your ex what they're doing with their sex, with right. their life, with anything. You're right. broken up. And I hate the fact that the next thought in my head is, well, she obviously didn't really want to break up with him because she left all of her stuff and she kept me because now I feel like I'm victim blaming and I'm like giving him excuses. But that is the narrative we've been given. It's very clear in both the book and the movie that she is still one foot into this relationship right they make especially in the movie she keeps getting her stuff a little bit more and then she comes in she gets a bag out of the closet and puts some things in the bag and then leaves and then later it's another bag but when they get back together he makes a big point she moved back in all at once and they show them with 27 bags and a suitcase you know bringing it all in because it's symbolic of like there it is and I, I hate that, that that was the thing. She could should have just mm-hmm. left him when she left him. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, then we wouldn't have this book. Fine. You know, I don't know. But yeah, and honestly, the, the book hits a little hard with the postmodernist ennui vibe at the end, because essentially both he and Laura come to the same conclusion that we're in our mid-30s and we're exhausted with with starting over so I may as well stick with you right Laura was like I thought that breaking up would just be like cutting a cord but there's like a lot of different cords and I'd have to cut every single one independently and each one hurts and I'm too tired for that my dad is dead and I'm just too tired so she's tired and then Rob gets tired of expecting and hoping for something new only for it to disappoint him and he is attached to laura and he's miserable without her so he may as well just stick with her and i'm like wow really deep loving relationship you two people have together and and they're like both of them are modern people laura doesn't want to get married but she's good he asks because she's not like other girls she's not like other girls anyways yeah, I'm with you. The, the The ending was. It's it doesn't matter what the answer is. It matters that you asked. Well, I feel like it kind of does like, matter what the answer right? is because if she had been like, "Yes, hooray," and he got, "Oh fuck!" Like that's a thing, right? Right? Like he wouldn't have been down with starting to plan a wedding. Like he wouldn't have. I just mm. well, and she also didn't respond. Like she responded by laughing. Yes, actually, props to Laura for that right. because she immediately points out. 
dude, last weekend you were making a mixtape for some rando and now you're proposing to mm-hmm. me. Like, I love how on the nose she is with that. Like, the women are good at calling him out. Um, but she didn't even respond with not marriage, but life commitment. Like, I am in this for the long haul and I'm glad to know you're in this for the long haul too. It was still very, that's nice. And yeah. Oh, I see that you're growing as a person. Okay, let's move on. What are we going to order for lunch? Yeah, yeah. And I do wonder, like, I feel like if there, if this was written, if Nick Hornby had written this from Laura's perspective, I have a strong feeling there'd be a bit in there with her being like, I'm in my mid-30s, and if I start over now, I might not have kids, but I could at least have kids with this asshole right now and make it last long enough for the kids to grow up and be out of the house. Or get a couple <laughs> years in and then leave him. Because, <laughs> she, because that's the other thing. She wants kids. Yeah. Like she flat out says, I want kids. Right. And he apparently is not opposed. God, could you imagine Rob was a dad? No. Lord. And he would have to be like the primary parent. Because she works. Could you imagine him with a little bassinet in the record store? Growing the next generation of pretentious music snobs. Oh my gosh. Okay. But speaking of the record store, I love dicks and berries both they both grow and change we get to see that and i know part of that is there to show that rob is not growing and changing and then he does and that's cool i like that barry could actually sing love rob was so nervous about having him play and then he played normal songs that he played their song like they all sort of they all sort of grew in their musical stuff a bit because rob comes to the conclusion that you have to give people music that they will like, right? You think mm-hmm. of, instead of giving them music that they should like, he, he's now going to make tapes of different new music that he thinks they'll like combined with music he knows they, they'll yes. like, right? For their taste. It's like buying a Christmas present for somebody and buying the thing that they actually want instead of the thing that you just found on sale at the last minute exactly. at TJ Maxx. Yeah. And Barry sort of comes to that same conclusion with his new band they got up there and they played classic rock and pop songs and everyone had fun and he had fun because he was singing Mm -hmm. in the band and he's like you know we're we're thinking about maybe just focusing on doing weddings yeah and like can you imagine barry at the beginning being that content with that Mm -hmm. like he's a snob about everyone else's music but then his own stuff comes along and he's like you know no, I just want to play. Yeah, there's a reason why this is good. Right? So right. I like that. And and Dick gets a girlfriend that's supportive and sweet. sweet. And bonds with him over music. And that he meets at work, which is, is adorable. adorable. And Sarah Gilbert's so cute. So cute. Have we talked about the racism? Oh, no. We've alluded to it. But yes. There are uh, racist terms in this book that would not fly nowadays. And I'm not going to give it a pass because it was published in 1995. And I'm pretty sure that in 1995, we already didn't use those words. And there's a lot of um, micro racism. Microaggression. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like the the stuff that back then no one would have even thought was racist. But now we're like, hmm. Like, Like comments like, oh, you don't. You know, you can like black music or you can like white music, but you don't mix them. Right. Right. That That was bizarre. I'm like, I think you can like whoever you like. Well, and then I was like, this is very British. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a British thing, but I don't. And then in the movie, 
in the movie, I got sort of the impression that there was a little bit of fetishizing going on with Marie, because <laughs> this is one of the things I pointed to Joe. I'm like, okay, so they switched from it being set in England with a white American girl as the single hot singer to the different right She's foreign to foreign, and different to yeah. an american movie and their idea of ooh, let's make an exotic singer was let's make her black yeah with dreadlocks right and i'm like or, ooh, i feel like modern audiences would be a lot more judgy of that yeah than a 2000 audience was right like wow they literally othered this girl the the, <laughs> the only thing that i will say makes that not quite as bad is that it is chicago right okay so you have representation of actual because like they also have their their friend lewis yes. who's in the shop who calls them snobs who's a truth teller is yes. also black yes right um you know so th there's that and i feel like there was somebody else but i you know um at Charlie's Charlie's dinner party, there was there was you know mm -hmm. a little bit more diversity there. Yes. So I feel like it was, in some ways, like otherwise it would be very white, and we would be right. we would be ragging on it because it would be too white. So like right. they put I just in, wish they would have made her British. That like, because that better. would have been. But the, you know, but British even, people can't sing, and British Sorry. people can't be black apparently. Ooh. Like all they would have had to do is give her an accent. accent. That would have been beautiful. And. She kind of had an accent, but it wasn't a British accent. It was a, it was a pretty woman act. I can't, I can't, you know, like the way, especially like at the when she was talking, she was like, its name was James. Like the way she moved her body and the way yes. she talked, she was very art, like careful with her diction. I guess that was because she's a singer songwriter and she's poetic, you know, and the way she, I love that microphone. I'm getting distracted. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. those were definitely all the, the selfishness, the mm -hmm. unaware inability to like see how he sees people. It's but the movie has like a lot of really funny, subtle things. Yes, like when he has his first flashback about Allison, and he's talking about like, well, then these girls they showed up suddenly. They our friends were girls, and girls are different. They had something, and we wanted it, and we didn't even know what we wanted. And as he's literally saying the phrase, like they had, you know, we didn't even know what we wanted, but we wanted it. The song in the background is candy. I want candy. And I was like, okay. Like somebody knows what they're yes. doing. And like the music in this movie is phenomenal. So mm -hmm. like the music in the book, I feel like doesn't age as well. It's a little esoteric. Part maybe because it's a little British. Maybe, and I'm not. Maybe, you know, but whatever. The movie though did such a good job. There was musical cues. The songs all made good sense. Soundtrack looks amazing. And hello, listeners. There's a Spotify playlist I'll put in the show notes, which has songs that were referenced in the book and the movie. It's 125 okay. songs. Long. It's a lot. It's a lot. And then the soundtrack itself looked pretty good too. Um, I looked at it online. And I'll link that to it as well. <clears throat> By the way, if you buy it, use our affiliate link. So, anyways, good music. I think that the movie did a better job of of pulling the music in and keeping it relevant to the theme without yeah. losing the audience because it was subtle because it was just in the background a lot of things especially at the end yes. when he's talking about i'm going to make her songs that she likes blah 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 and then he flicks the switch and the song is literally about like falling in love and being happy with it you know right yeah right 
Yeah. Now I will say Nick <clears throat> Hornby was exactly correct that they translated the book almost exactly to the movie. They just omitted certain and changed tweaked right. things slightly, but most of the dialogue was out of the book. Things were fairly well as described. It progressed fairly in line. And this is one of the reasons why I don't read a lot of literary fiction these days is because it's only a movie's worth of material mm -hmm. in a book. And to me, that's just an awful lot of in the character's head monologuing about stuff. There's no action scenes in this. There's no no excitement. There's no real plot. There's no like like there's no all these things happen and these things are clearly growth. And they, I like a little bit more than just an asshole in my books. So you needed a dragon. <laughs> I need a dragon. I needed maybe a mystery. See, in the in the movie, they added those kids and their record thing. And mm -hmm. that gave it oh. the the a, a, a veneer of a plot uh -huh. that like we're moving towards a change and, a, and and something. I didn't really see. I just saw it as a party in the book. Like maybe he can go back to DJing if he wants to. Right. But it's more of a reminder that he likes his life. Right. Really. Mm-hmm. And there are things that he's passionate about and he just needs to pursue those more. But the movie sort of was like, no, we actually need a little bit more meat here <laughs> for us to grab onto. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not my favorite genre. I know you read a lot more in the modern literary fiction. I read a lot more old literary fiction, but yeah, you know, that had, at least it has the historical differences that make it more interesting for my brain that mm -hmm. I can focus on. Yeah, fair. Yeah. I think, I remember when, when in college, there were a few books in, written about this time period that you really liked, and every single one of them was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Insufferable well, humans! <laughs> I do, I mean, to be fair, graduated from college in 2005, mm -hmm. and my emphasis was postmodern deconstructionist. Right. Which is literally this time period of the 80s right, and the right, 90s right. that's that was yeah so it informs a lot of of stuff even though i i don't read as much of the 80s and 90s stuff now but i do read a lot of um 2000s and i well, i just read a lot i have a book review blog in case anybody wants to see what i'm reading <laughs> regularly okay i'm gonna do my star trek trivia okay and then we can have our final thoughts okay so this is exciting here is my star trek trivia they're very light on the Star Trek trivia this time, sadly. <laughs> Here we go. At one point, but before it was the Undiscovered Country, originally Star Trek VI was going to be about Kirk and Spock in the Academy. Oh. Okay. Okay. And John Cusack was going to play young Spock. Wow. Right didn't happen i cannot see that <laughs> me neither <laughs> but it was going to happen um but because it was getting close to the 25th anniversary they scrapped that idea because they wanted to bring the original cast back for star trek 6 and continue you know okay. whatever because that's a more bankable thing which makes sense also i don't think john cusack would make a very good spock i see him much more i mean 80s 
and early 90s John Cusack, not John Cusack right, today, right. but like back then you could see maybe like Chekhov, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Like it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, or somebody that they encounter, one of the aliens, or I could almost even see him being like a mud from like Mud's Women kind of a thing. Mm. Um, you know, that, that charismatic, likable bad guy. You know what I mean? Yes. Even though Harry Mudd was awful, but you know what I mean? Okay. I would Anyways. like to see John Cusack in more villain roles. Yeah. There, what was that? There's one where he's like a, like a deranged, but he's like also mentally ill. What is it? He gets stuck in a hotel and he can't leave and it turns yeah. out that he's the bad guy all along. Spoilers for whatever movie I'm thinking. Yes. I can't think of it. Yes. I'll have to figure it out and yes. put it in the show notes. Okay. Anyways, our other Star Trek connection is not very big, but we talked about John Cusack. We talked about Joan Cusack, who's amazing also, yes. right? Did you know they have another sister? Yes. Her name is Anne Cusack and she... <laughs> played Maggie in the Star Trek Enterprise second season episode, Carbon Creek. So ah. there you go. So that's our, that's our Star Trek <laughs> trivia. Nice. <laughs> had, to, had to stretch nice. a little bit for that one, but that's okay. So Leah, was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time? Yeah. No. <laughs> right. So I've spent the whole time talking about how much I hated the character and the book and, and how much it frustrated me. But it was very well written. The characterization was well done. Um, I think it is a really actually a very good look at that time period and the way people thought and the all the gender stuff going on and a little bit of the racial stuff going on and how families are changing and friendships are changing and connections and I don't think I'll read the book again but it was interesting but the movie yeah the movie is worth watching he's just everyone's just so charming and you actually get enough focus on Laura in the movie I feel like when you watch the movie it's like yes I can see this is a romance this is a, a this is a relationship that's going through a rough patch but it's the same relationship from start to finish the book you don't get much laura until like midway or past midway through when her dad dies and then she shows up in person Uh, before that there's a lot of in his head there's a lot of denial there's a lot of him deliberately not thinking about laura so it feels less like a romance and more like just this guy stuck where he is so i felt the first half of the movie or the book dragged a lot so yeah, I mean, I think it's worth it. Uh, and the movie's worth it. I liked it. So here are my thoughts. The book. The book is pop music. It's really, I really enjoyed it when it came out. It doesn't really age all that well. There's the racism, the misogyny, the stupid patriarchal male entitlement. Bullshit! But it is very well written and plotted. The atmosphere and tone are fine, bordering on really good, especially the conversational tone and the writing style. It's clever, but the character... The main character is awful and barely redeemed, and the side characters are just waiting to be fleshed out. Um, The male apologetic woe-is-me loser. He's only a bit tolerable, not really lovable, but then the movie comes along. The movie is the opposite. It's cute and clever. It does lose points for how it treats Penny, and no, it's being 20 years old doesn't excuse that, but it is the sort of saved by 
John Cusack and by Barry and Jack Black and him actually doing things and making the choices to change himself. The movie is totally worth watching because John Cusack is great. He's at the top of his game here. This is why people love him. And it's a non-typical romantic comedy where the dude is front and center and there's actual character growth. We don't actually get a lot of romantic comedies where the man is the main character. So exactly. there you go. Um, side characters are amazing. The casting is superb. Every single person knocks it out of the park. And I, it, it's like one of the best casted movies I've ever seen. I would say if you haven't already read this book, don't bother unless you just, you, you know, what we've said about it has made you just really nostalgic for 90s, you know, male lit, which is fine. But honestly, there's a lot of other stuff out there to read. If you haven't watched it yet, you should totally watch it with a caveat to remember that it's very much a product of its time, but totally, totally worth watching. And the soundtrack of the movie sounds phenomenal. And um, yeah, I have that Spotify list saved and I'm really looking forward to listening to it. I'll probably listen to it while I make the show notes for the show. Speaking of show notes, you can find them at kmmamedia.com, Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Did you like that segue? I'm very proud of that segue. That was good, it was off the cuff. I, I think that um, if you're a music geek in particular, you really enjoy the movie, not just for the music, but um, the there's an awful lot of band posters and stuff. It feels like there's a lot of references and like little nods to the in crowd that if you are a music person, mm -hmm. that is sort of you know, that's your life, you'll probably get a kick out of those visuals and the nostalgia of it too. Like, ah, look what they've got in there. Oh, look at that record. Oh, you know, and so if you know that stuff mm -hmm. really well, you'll probably get a kick out of it. I'll say also the movie came out in the year 2000 and there's not a lot of 2000 music on the list that I was looking right. at. Most of it is older, which is interesting, of mm -hmm. course. Um, and we didn't talk about it because I didn't watch it, but they did try to re- boot slash retool this by making it into a tv series main character was a woman who ran a record store a woman oh, oh interesting so like, but she has the same thing where she's got these past relationships and she's trying to figure out what went wrong and blah 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 obviously they couldn't put the um penny situation in right and i don't and they, there's a few other major changes again i just read a little bit about it didn't didn't watch it but I, what I didn't look into, and I should have, is is how different the music was. Because I'm sure that when you make right. redo it in whatever 2018, I think, or something ridiculous like that, you know, they're going to use completely different pop music and completely different references and stuff. So, yeah. Anyways, if you've seen that show, uh, let me know. And I'm curious about it, but not curious to watch it because time is limited. <laughs> But anyways, thank you so much, Leah. This was super thank you. fun. It was fun. Yes, I'm glad that you got to rewatch the movie and enjoy it. I, I, I definitely enjoy rewatching mm -hmm. the movie. Yeah, it definitely holds up. I just have to divorce it from my from the horrible rob of the book. But yeah, no, this was super fun. Good, <laughs> good choice. And um, yeah, come back in two weeks, listeners, and listen to our next episode. And I can't remember what it is going to be in two weeks. So you'll have to just watch our social media and we will let you know. Yay! Yay! And I didn't even go on about how, how annoying Nick Hornby's um, failure to give who's talking tags was. Right. I feel like Jurassic Park. I'm like, boy, Michael Crichton says said a lot. And this one, I'm like, 
multiple points in this novel, I, I lost track of who was talking. Really? The because they were such fast back and forths between mm. him and like Liz usually. And I'm like, wait, wait, who said which to what? <laughs> and I 